Good morning, everybody. Thanks to Andre and the team. And it's great to be outdoors once again and to welcome everyone to our service. As you can see, um, in terms of the numbers, some folk have already taken vacation. Um, others might just be tired because this has been a very difficult year. It's been a very difficult month and week, especially if you're a matriculant. Um, and aren't you glad that you don't have to rewrite certain exams? But we still continue to spare thought for those who will have some of the finals just still this coming week. Um, and we are happy to see others who are joining us who might not have been feeling so well. So Neville, it's nice to see you. Um, and so blessings to everyone. As you know, <coughs> Craig is on leave. Um, and so I've been afforded this opportunity of being able to share with you from God's Word um, this morning, um, as well as next week that I'm also very um, grateful for. Um, so if you don't like what I have to say today, um, I guess you're going to be taking a break next week. Um, but nevertheless, um, if you do not know, it's 12 days to Christmas. 12 days. Um, and so I guess you can start singing that song about partridges and pear trees and everything else that goes with that. Um, but as I reminded us not too long ago, um, we are in that season of Advent. Um, and in fact, today is the third Sunday of Advent with one more to go, one more Sunday before, before Christmas. And so in this kind of two-part series that I'm going to be sharing with you, I'm going to be focusing on two scripture verses, one this week and Lord willing, one next week. Um, scripture verses that we know very well. In fact, they are scripture verses that we will often find recorded on Christmas cards, you know, because um, there are certain passages in the Bible and certain verses of Scripture um, that remind us as to um, what the celebration actually is for this time of the year. And, and when we refer to these verses of Scripture, um, I know that we all have what we might call this inherent sense, um, this understanding um, as to what these Scriptures mean and what they actually point to. But what I've discovered is, and what I, I guess we, we might also encounter today, is that while we know those individual, those particular verses of Scripture, we don't often appreciate the specific context or the historical context within which these verses occur. So in seeking to appreciate, help us to appreciate our understanding of that, we, we are going to affirm those passages of Scripture. I'm going to be referring to them and seeking to explain their context. But my particular message today, as well as next, next week, has actually got the same title. And the title of my message is God by Any Other Name. God by Any Other Name. And so this is God by Any Other Name, part one. Um, and so the passage of Scripture I wish to draw your attention to is that well-known passage recorded in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading um, through this passage. And as I read the passage, you'll soon hear what that passage is that we all know very, very well. Um, Isaiah chapter 7 from verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah was king of Judah. King Rezan of Aram and Pekah son of Ramalia, king of Israel, 
marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son Shehar Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because the fierce anger of Rezan and Aram and of the son of Ramalia. Aram, Ephraim, and Ramalia's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of the Beal king over it. Yet, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only risen. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only Ramalia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then, I, then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle flies from the Nile Delta in Egypt and for bees from the land of Assyria. That this morning is the reading of the scriptures. And I guess amidst the story that I'm sure, you know, might not necessarily ring too familiar with you because I think not too many people tend to read the historical sections of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. I'm sure you would have identified, you know, because it is that time of the year, it is Christmas, that the verse we're going to be focusing our attention upon is this beautiful verse, Therefore the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. The question has been posed, what is in a name and I'm sure that many of you who are familiar with that and who have studied Shakespeare 
will know that that question, that question that some have described as a deeply philosophical question, but it was actually a very practical question, was actually uttered by Juliet in Act 2, Scene 2 of that famous Shakespearean tragedy, Romeo and Juliet. You see, it is a question that was posed by Juliet when she mourns that the one that she loves, Romeo, actually has a surname that her family hates. Romeo was a Montague and Juliet was a Capulet. And these were two feuding families. And so for them to fall in love was not the thing that, 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 that ought to be done. But we'll get back to that a bit later. What is in a name? You see, I think a name is something that we often take for granted. Um, in fact, a name is something that if we begin to think about it, um, is something that we all have in common. In fact, it is something that we have in common, not just with our fellow human beings, it is something that everything has in common. You see, even nothing is named something. It's named nothing. You see, from the tiniest particle that we have discovered and that we will maybe still continue to discover to the furthest star in the universe when it is discovered, one of the first things that people do when they discover something new, whether it is a, a tiny particle, whether it's a star, whether it's a new plant, whether it's a new animal, what do they do? They name it. They give it a name. They give it a label. And every name has a story, does it not? And I think this is especially true for us as human beings. Um, names are often dead give giveaways, you know, as to what inspired our parents, maybe, um, to give us that name. Um, and I'm sure many of you will, will, will know, you know, in the early days of television, for example, you know, um, every nice looking guy's name was Wesley because of, you know, rich man, poor man. <laughs> But definitely there were no JRs. <laughs> you know, and so yes, so some people are named after famous people, you know, some famous actor, some famous poet, or whatever the case might be. Some even opt for biblical names, you know, so names like David, yes, but names like Judas, no, you know. Um, names like Mary, yes, but names like Jezebel, no. <laughs> um, there's a sense in which, you know, even in the naming, you know, there, 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 there is sometimes a desire, you know, to make reference to our family history, you know, and so depending on the culture and your family history, you know, there's sometimes this pressure, you know, when you, when you are going to have a child, you know, after who is the child going to be named, you know, is it going to be named after one of the grandparents, you know, and sometimes what you will do is you'll do like what the royalty, um, um, what the royal um, people do, you know, um, you will name the, the, the child after everyone, you know, so you will have, for example, in England, His Royal Highness Charles Philip Arthur George, you know, um, the South African version of that you will know is Johannes Gerardus Stephanus Jacobus Pietrus van der Merwe. The practice amongst the indigenous American tribes, you know, their tradition was that when the father would exit the birth teepee 
the first thing he saw, one of the first things he saw would often be the inspiration for the naming of the child. So you would get names like Running Bear, you know, or Flying Eagle. Um, or I remember a number of years ago, you know, there was a Western on TV, you know, the chief's son's name was Mountain is Long, <laughs> because he saw the Long Mountains, you know. Um, Table Mountain, <laughs> imagine your name was called that. But you see, I think most people, when they, when they want to name the child, they are like my wife, you know, believe, and, and I agree with her, um, we want a name to have substance. You know, we want a name to have particular meaning. Uh, and I'm sure that there are many of you here today, as you reflect on what I've been talking about names, you might be thinking about your own name, you know, and, and, and what is, what may be the, the meaning that is associated with your name. You see, my own name was, was chosen by my mother. And she had a very close friend, um, a lady friend. And so she decided um, that when I was born, the fir her firstborn, she was going to name me after her friend. But you see, as she pronunciated my name to the nurse who was writing out the details for the birth certificate, um, she said Lindsay, you know, which was the phonetic version of the name Ella in the SAY, which by the way you can also pronunciate as Lindsay amongst many other ways of pronunciation. Um, and so my name in terms of its spelling is actually a mistake. But I like it, you know, because because it is it is kind of unique. And so I remember going on that quest, you know, of trying to to find out, you know, so so what does my name actually mean? You know, and so you've got these various dictionaries. In fact, one of it I found quite disappointing. It said the name has no meaning, you know, because the, the name is now um, no longer just a female name. It's now a male name, you know. But then I discovered in another little dic dictionary, it said, well, that the name actually originally meant pretty maiden. Anyway, that's, a, that's another story for another day. Um, but you see, part of the significance of names is exactly that, that a name carries meaning. And we know that very well, especially be because of certain characters in the Bible. I mean, uh, I think everybody knows that Abraham's name means the father of many. The name represents something about who he was. Um, and what he was to become. David, the great king of the Bible, his name meant beloved. Um, and so through many of the names, in fact, every single name in the Bible carries a meaning. You see, even God has a name. And many people think they know that name. But the truth is, we don't actually know what God's name is. And yes, I know, you know, that we, that we sing songs like um, there's no God like Jehovah and that there are certain groups, you know, who comes knocking at your door selling you some books that will insist, you know, that his name is Jehovah. But what I hope to explain to you today is that that pronunciation is unfortunately actually a mistake. You see, sure, there are many instances in the Bible, you know, in terms of the way in which we translate the scriptures, that we find many wonderful descriptions about God. 
in, in reference to his name, you know, words that I'm, I'm sure, you know, we've, we, we, we use in songs, and I'm, not, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting it's wrong, by the way, to do that, you know, but, but I'm hoping to explain something important here today, you know. So, so yes, we, in songs, um, and in Christian posters that we often buy, you know, that refers to the names of God, you know, we will speak about Jehovah Rapha, for example, you know, the Lord who is my or is my healer, or Jehovah Jireh, you know, the Lord who is my provider, you know, as we see on those posters. But, but unfortunately, that pronunciation is actually based on a misunderstanding of the history of God's name and its translation. You see, while there are a number of general divine terms, divine descriptions used of God in the Bible, and many of them are titles that are built around God's personal name. What we need to understand is that God has got a name that was originally pronunciated. Now, um, on the WhatsApp group that, that hopefully you are part of, when Andrea sent out the, um, the, the, the lyrics to the songs, I asked her to send you a picture because it's going to be very difficult to explain something when you don't have the picture. So you would see there a, a picture that was sent to you um, that is actually what I'm wanting to use today as a means of illustrating to help you to understand what God's name is all about. And on that picture, you'll see some funny squiggles. You see those funny squiggles? Now, in fact, the, the, the funny squiggle that is um, a, a bold funny squiggles, in fact, it's a, it's, it's a word that has got four funny squiggles. Those four funny squiggles is actually the Hebrew characters for God's name. Um, the word that is technically used for that is the tetragrammaton, which literally means the four letters. You see, the, the Hebrew language as a written language originally only had consonants. There was no vowels within the Hebrew alphabet written. There was vowels in the spoken language of Hebrew, but not in its written form. So older versions, older um, copies of the Bible would be what we would call a consonantal text. It only had the consonants um, um, of, the, um, um, of, of the Bible. But vowels was something that you needed to memorize. So, so you needed to memorize how to read the Bible, which obviously became a problem, you know. Um, so how was one going to remember that? So as a result, over time, you know, pious Jews, as their way of paying respect to God, and also trying to make sure that they were not going to be breaking the third commandment. You know, the third of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not use the name of the Lord your God in vain. So, the practice arose that out of respect for God, people stopped actually pronunciating God's name. And so that when they would read the Bible, when they would read the text in the um, original Hebrew language, when they would come to the tetragrammaton, those four letters, they actually would skip over it. They wouldn't pronounce it, they wouldn't say it. But as you know, that became, that, that is very awkward, you know, to try and do all of that. Um, so, so they found a way of substituting the reading of God's name. And they chose another Hebrew word, which is the word Adonai, that means my Lord. 
And so the practice arose that whenever they started reading God's name, whenever they came across God's personal name, God's covenantal name, the Tetragrammaton, in its place, instead of trying to pronunciate God's name, which over time had actually been lost in its pronunciation, they would just simply say this other word, this other Hebrew word in its place, Adonai. So the Jewish scribes who became responsible for copying the text, you know, because in those days they didn't have um, photocopy machines like we have today or scanners, you know, everything needed to be written by hand. So there were specific scribes who had the task of copying the text over and over again. And these same scribes actually invented those rare little squeals that you'll see there around, around the name. Those are called the, the Masoretic vowel points. It was their way of trying to write down what the vowel sounds were that were associated with the name. But you see, what the Masoretes did was, they recognized that when you came to the divine name, when you came to God's name, you weren't supposed to try and say the name. You actually had to say this other word in its place. So they actually borrowed the vowel points of Adonai and they added it to the Tetragrammaton, which is God's personal name, which results in this awkward sounding name, which sounds like a new name, and that name is Jehovah. But the word was never actually supposed to be pronunciated that way. It was actually supposed to be pronunciated Adonai. See, because these pious Jews wanted to respect God's name, and even to this very day, that is still what pious Jews do. They will often refer to God as Hashem, which literally means the name. See, another little fact that goes with that, you know, and sometimes you will have um, these, Jew, these um, JW friends, you know, coming to visit and they will insist, you know, that, that God's name is Jehovah. The, the truth of the matter is the Hebrew language and the Hebrew alphabet does not even have the letter J in it. And that might come to you as a surprise. In fact, um, what actually happens with all words in our English Bible that has got the letter J, it's actually a transliteration of the Hebrew letter Y. Um, so all words that, that in our Bible starts with Y, like Jerusalem, Josiah, and every other name you can think of, actually has got the letter Y associated with it. And, and, and the reason why the J crept in was because before the Bible was translated or, or written into English, it was written in German. And in German, um, they have the letter J, which is pronunciated as we pronunciate our letter Y. So when our Bible, when we got the English Bible, the, the German influence remained and the letter J was included instead of the letter Y. So it was kind of this, this accident <laughs> that kind of crept into our translations. But, but you know, if, 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 if that is something difficult to understand, you know, um, I would maybe liken it like to, you know, when you go to McDonald's. I don't know if you've had that experience, you know, but you go to McDonald's, for example, and then you order nuggets. And then you say, they ask you, and what sauce would you like with your nuggets? And then I would say, I would like the jalapeno sauce, please. And then the lady would say, no, sorry, we don't have that. We only have got jalapeno sauce. And then I would say to her, okay, then I'll just take the jalapeno sauce. But you'll get to hear about it as well as everyone else on 531. 
and that especially in the months of Hoon and Hulai. But you see, the point I'm trying to make is this. You know, just because we say something wrong doesn't mean we aren't referring to the actual thing. You know, and, 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 and that is true for any language. I mean, I mean think, for example, um, writing down some of our indigenous languages like Tosa. You know, I mean, there are sounds in the language that we in English just don't have, and we don't have letters to represent that. So when that language was written down, they would borrow letters that, that they don't use in their language, like the letter X, um, to represent that click sound. You know, and so yes, we sometimes say that wrong, and especially Americans struggle with that, you know. Um, they would like to speak X Hoser, you know, but, 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 but we know what they're referring to. You see, ultimately, the pronunciation doesn't matter. You see, whether you call me Lindsay or Lindsay, it's still me. God ultimately knows who he is. And he knows that when we are addressing him, no matter in what way we are addressing him, no matter in what language we are addressing him, no matter what accent we are using to, to address him, God knows and he understands you see, what is more important when it comes to the name is not so much its pronunciation, and it doesn't mean that we mustn't try, you know, we must at least try, um, but we also need to understand its meaning. You see, in biblical day, na days, names were more than just a label. It was more than just a convenient way to call upon some, someone or to call someone something. A name revealed essential character. A name always communi communicated the essence of who that person was. You see, there was a lot in a person's name. And unlike us today, you know, who often decides before the time what the person's name is going to be, um, in biblical days, a name was often given much later. In fact, a name could often change as you came to understand and as the person's character was revealed. And that's why sometimes, you know, people would have their names changed, you know, because, um, so like, Jacob became Israel, you know, Jacob, who was the deceiver, became Israel, the one who strives with God, you know. And so um, the name was something very, very important because it represented the essence of who the person is. You see, in a real sense, when you know someone's name, especially in the times of the Bible, there was a sense in which you would have power over that person. The same was true within the religious context. You see, gods had names. And, 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 and many people believed within the time of the Bible that if you knew a god's name, by chanting his name, you would force God, the god into action. But you see, the Bible actually tries to avoid that. So if you remember the, the passage in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7 that says that when we, we pray, we mustn't get caught in vain repetitions. See, what God, what Jesus is in essence also saying there is that we mustn't fall prey to think that saying something in the name of Jesus is kind of like our Christian abracadabra. And just because we say Jesus' name and just because we, 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 we are able to use it in song and just because we maybe repeat it or we try to say it as loudly as possible that we can force God to act. 
Yes, we must ask in the name of Jesus. There's biblical precedence for that. Look at John chapter 14, verse 13, verse 14. Jesus himself said that we need to ask in his name. But you see, when we conclude our prayer, and when we pray something in the name of Jesus, you know, we're not pulling the heavenly slot machine, you know, trying to predetermine what it is that we want. It is simply just a sign of our faith in God. It's a sign that we are dependent upon Him. So yes, that was a bit of a long explanation. But I think it was important, you know, to understand the background of the intention of the revelation of God, especially in this passage that we're referring to this morning. You see, it was in times of crisis and times of need that God would often step in. And in stepping in, God would reveal various aspects about Himself. You see, it was never so much knowledge of God's name that mattered. But rather, it was getting to know Him. You see, just because you know somebody's name doesn't necessarily mean that you know them. You know, we, we, we do that, we will introduce, we say, this is so and so. You know, yes, we've introduced them, but, it, but we haven't really gotten to know them. And that's a sense that we need to understand So when we get back to this passage. So, it was 740 years before Christmas, 740 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah, as we read in this passage, was faced with the prospect of war. The nation of um, God's people, the nation had already been divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But there was trouble brewing in the north. Not just in the northern kingdom of Israel, but further north because of the Assyrian ascendancy. There was this great superpower that was arising. And Assyria sought, like many superpowers um, in the history of the world, to conquer the world. And so they had their sights set on Israel and they had their sights set on Egypt. There was enmity between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, just like between the Montagues and the Capulets. We are introduced in this passage to the king of Israel, his name was Speaker, who entered into an alliance with Rezin, the king of Syria. Now, you, you might not appreciate you know, how um, tragic that is. You know, it is like in the modern day Israeli parliament, you know, the Knesset. Imagine that one of the opposition parties to the ruling party, which is the Likud party of Benjamin Netanyahu, imagine one of the other Jewish parties wanting to overthrow Netanyahu and they sign an alliance with the Taliban. You know, that's exactly what was happening here. The northern kingdom of Israel, Pika, enters into an alliance with Rezin, the king of Syria, in order to try and preempt what was going to be happening through the Assyrian invasion. And so this is described in verses 3 through to verse 17 of the passage that we read, that is sometimes described as the Syro-Ephraimitic crisis. The southern kingdom of Judah, with its capital in Jerusalem, was facing a possible war. Their cousins in the north, their brothers in the north, was entering into an alliance with their enemy, which was Syria. 
You see, it would be normal in times like these with impending war that the king would call upon his advisors. He would call upon his generals. He would call upon his prophets for advice and insight and in order to get some kind of divine direction. But King Ahaz at this time, he is not interested in a sign. And we know historically why that is the case. Because when you read the story of this account in 2 Kings chapter 16, and you can read it in Chronicles as well, you see, Ahaz thought that the only way he could avert this crisis was to pay tribute to the Assyrian king. In fact, in the Assyrian king annals, archaeological records have discovered that the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser, wrote in his annals that King Ahaz of Judah had used the temple treasures as a bribe to him, King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. And so Ahaz thought he was safe. He's taken the best of his, of his treasures, which was actually the temple treasures, and he's paid this over to Assyria, thinking that Assyria will save him from this war that he's going to have to wage with his cousins up in the north who's entered into an alliance with the Taliban. And this is when God calls upon Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. You see, there's, very, there's every indication in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah held a very important office. It would seem that Isaiah was what we might call a royal scribe, a royal historiographer. Isaiah was a very educated person. He was the scribe who would be responsible for, for writing down amongst other scribes who had this responsibility of recording the actions of the king, writing down the actions of the king. You know, in modern terms, Isaiah was like the social media manager of his day. He would give face to the books for every little tweet that a bird would give, you know, and make sure that that happens in an instant gram. You know what I mean? You see, Isaiah understood his times, not only because he was part of the royal court, but because, if you remember Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah had special insight into what was actually happening in the heavenly court. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this magnificent, this wonderful vision. You see, when King Uzziah had died more than 20 years before that, Isaiah had a vision of God seated on his throne. A vision that was so magnificent, Isaiah describes it as that the glory of God even filled the temple. In fact, translate the passage properly, you will see the passage actually says it is God. God's Him of His glory that fills the temple. God is so great. God is so glorious. Isaiah cannot withstand that vision. But Isaiah had this insight that while the earthly throne room was empty, the heavenly throne room was still occupied by God. God was still God and God was still in charge. So Uzziah went and he was followed by Jotham and then he was followed by Ahaz. And here Ahaz is saying he can depend on his own wits. He can depend upon his own political strategy. There is no need for a sign. But God is insisting because God has got a lesson to teach him. So God says to Isaiah, take your son and your son whose name is Shah Jashub. And take him and go and meet Ahaz. And you go and tell him that this is the sign. Now, it was amazing how God 
um, would so take over the life of the prophet Isaiah that he would even want Isaiah to name his children particular names. So, so the name Shah Jashub means a remnant will return. In other words, God was saying to, to Ahaz, there's no way you're going to stop this war. And you think you have bribed and you're going to stop the Assyrians. But just when you think you have won the battle against your cousins in the north, you're going to lose the war potentially to the Assyrians if you do not repent, if you do not turn from your wicked ways, if you do not do what um, Uzziah had done, who was a good king. And so, that, so that's what happens. And we know that Isaiah was married. Um, in chapter 8, we are told he's married to a prophetess. Um, and they actually eventually have two sons. So besides Shah Jashub, um, there's another son that Isaiah has. And God says to him, you must name the son Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Um, I'm not too sure anybody here would be inspired to name their child that. In fact, it would pose quite a bit of a problem, you know, if you were to come to the Explore service, because I'm sure Hilda would not be able to write that name down. We'd probably need about three or four stickers, you know, to do that. But spare thought for Maharshala Ashbaz, who probably would only be able to spell his own name by grade three. His name meant speed the spoils. In other words, it was through the birth of this earthly child, this child that was going to be born to Isaiah's wife, that God is saying to King Ahaz, don't depend in your, on your own strength. Don't depend on your own political ability. Depend on the one who is seated on the throne. And that is where the prophecy comes. The young woman, the virgin, will give birth. And his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. You see, it is in that name that God is trying to show Ahaz, as Isaiah came to understand, that God knows everything that is happening. That God is intimately involved in processes. You see, this is not the first time in this passage um, that the name comes up. Later on in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 8 as well in verse 10, you'll see the name Emmanuel appears, to gain, uh, appears again. You see, what is happening? We, see, we need to understand how God would often communicate in prophetic speech. So that while God would reveal His purposes, God would also at the same time conceal what He was ultimately doing. I mean, just, just take your, your minds back to that very first time that God revealed Himself to Moses. So there's Moses at the burning bush. And God tells Moses, you must go and you must tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you must tell God's people that God has sent him, sent him and that they must follow Him and that they must leave Egypt and until the place where God um, wants them to go, you know, which is Mount Sinai and eventually on into the Promised Land. And then Moses knows, you know, the people's going to want to know, you know, but which God is this? You know, because in Egypt, they had, they had become familiar with many different gods, you know. So anything you can conceive of, um, you know, like Hindus, you know, they, 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 they name 
a god after everything, you know, so that you have anywhere between two and a half million and maybe four million gods, you know, that's what happened in Egypt. And, and God's people themselves had forgotten who the true God was, but they, they wanted to know his name, you know, because a name is everything. So if you mention the name of a God that is more powerful than any other God, you know, they, they, will, they will follow. But what God does in revealing himself to Moses is not actually giving his name is to give a hint as to who he is in essence. And we know um, what God tells Moses, you know, tell them I am has sent you, or I will be who I will be has sent you. And in fact, that verb is almost exactly the same as the Tetragrammaton, almost exactly the same spelling as God's covenant, God's personal name. See, what was God doing? God was not only revealing himself, but he was also concealing his ultimate purposes. Remember when Jesus stood before Pilate, he answered, I am. And who went crazy? The Jews. Because they knew that that word, I am, was a reference to God. And that anybody who would dare to say, I am God, is either mad or you had to take them serious. Because what they were doing was serious. You see, what God was wanting to show His people was that while it sometimes feels as if He's far away, He's actually very near. So that while God is not going to necessarily take every crisis away from us, while God is not necessarily going to avert us from a crisis, He is going to be present and He is going to be the one who is going to be taking us through that. You see, the birth of a child is a sign of hope. Because a child, even in the time of crisis, being born is a symbol of the future. It is a symbol of hope. And that is what God is saying to, to, to Ahaz through Isaiah. It's not just the birth of that child that would take place in the context, but in the future there's going to be the birth of the ultimate sign that God is with us in the birth of Jesus. So where do we find ourselves today? The year 2020, a year of crisis. I guess this is what it would have felt like for the Israelites, for the people of Judah, as they heard that Assyria was coming. But what is God's purposes? Think about what the birth of a child represents. Because that is what Christmas represents. It's a reminder that God is with us. You see, and so we should celebrate Christmas not so much just looking into the past, thinking about the baby Jesus lying in the manger, but we must celebrate Christmas looking towards the future. Because Christ is going to return. And then He's never going to be going away after that. What's in a name? That was the question that was posed by Juliet. But she actually went on. She actually continued. She said, That which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell just as sweet. That was her way of Shakespeare saying, A spade by any other name is a spade. You see, God by any other name is still God. He knows exactly who He is. But you see, all of these names that we have attributed to Him, all of these titles that's associated with His name, all of that is wanting us, 
is there to help us to understand that knowledge of God is more important than know, not than, than knowing how to say His name. It's not so much that we know how to say His name. The question is, do we know Him? It does not actually matter how we say it, as long as we understand what it means. God by any other name is God, as long as we acknowledge and, and He is worshipped as the God of the Bible. So in conclusion, I want to say four things, very quickly. What does God's name mean? First of all, God's name is a reflection of His character. See, when God says He will be who He will be, He can be taken seriously. So that no matter what the situation, and that is why we have all the titles, all the different names of God, because no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, He will be who He will be. The, the second thing I want to share with you today is that a name serves as a memorial. You see, for us, we, we kind of understand that. You know, when we name something and when we remember people who have passed on, we remember them by name. Um, in the Old Testament, that was also significant. Um, in fact, the great memorial, the great um, uh, museum in Israel called the Yad Vashem literally means a hand and a name. In fact, that's a term that comes directly from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56 verse 1, where God says you will be remembered because of your deeds, your hand, and because of your name. So a name is very significant. Thirdly, God's name illustrate, illustrates that He's interested in us. I mean, who else would be named God with us? God is not like those whose names change, who sometimes hide the identity through changing their names. You know, we know naughty people often do that. They change their names. They want to hide their identity. They want to hide their wrongdoing. But that is not God. But fourthly, God's name demonstrates His ongoing and His ultimate plan. And that ultimate plan is, as Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 says, it is salvation. You see, while there were many names within the Bible that referred to God, you know, and sometimes we come across the abbreviated version of His name, Yah, as in the word Hallelujah, which means praise God, praise the Lord. It is amazing how many other characters in the Bible illustrates and serve to remind us as to what God's ultimate plan always is. Names like Craig reminded us last week, Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves. Names like Isaiah, Isaiah's name means the Lord saves. Jesus, sometimes pronunciated Yeshua in Aramaic, which means the Lord saves. You see, God is in the saving business. And that is why Acts chapter 4 verse 12 can, can declare salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we can be saved. So what is Christmas? Christmas is the mass of Christ. It is the worship of Christ as the embodiment, as the fulfillment of God's presence himself amongst us he is God with us so how are we going to be celebrating Christmas as I draw part one to a close not just retrospectively as we think about the baby lying in the manger gentle Jesus meek and mild the manger is empty but he is seated on a throne
We need to celebrate Christmas. We need to say this name with boldness and worship Him prospectively. You know, they say Christmas only come once a year. But if we understand it properly, Christmas actually happens every day. You know, they say in Afrikaans, Elke dag is a Christmas Eve. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> See, when we allow God to enter into our circumstances, when we allow God to enter into our lives, then it is Christmas. How are you going to celebrate it? I know how I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going to reflect. And I'm going to call upon that name. The name Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and that through your name and through your names you have made known what your purposes and what your plans are. And we want to thank you for the gift of salvation but we thank you that salvation while it is the gift that you give us that we can be called your children that ultimately we are saved and we will enter into your kingdom it also means that you are concerned about our circumstances right now even in this moment and so we want to pray for your people while we seek to celebrate during this time of crisis and for many we know even for those sitting here it is a very real crisis a very real uncertainty because of what this year has just brought but we know that you are concerned about each one of us and so we pray that in a very real sense that this Christmas might be a real experience of your presence with us and amongst us. God be with us. But not just with us as we celebrate and as we are thankful for your provision, but also for those who are less privileged. And so we pray, dear Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you might supply needs. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you might move us that as we give and receive gifts as a symbol that you are concerned for us help us to share gifts with others as well as we do this in the name of Jesus and we pray this in his name Amen so thank you very much everyone hope that you have a blessed day and we see you this evening, the Lord willing, at the Christmas carol service. Thank you.